0: hello everyone and welcome to another episode of lords of limited my name is ben warney and joining me on the line is ethan sachs ethan it is spring break baby i made it we've crossed the finish line in nearing well we haven't crossed the finish line yet. i guess we're we're hitting the,
1: the last turn on the track I can hear the the pep and the zing in your voice about the the two weeks of nonstop magic coming up in your life. I am
0: looking forward to drafting up a storm.
1: Yeah, I'm excited for you to get uh get back into War of the Spark for the last week that it's there. That's I, I think of you whenever I think of that format.
0: It's so good. It's so clear to me, like everything that you're supposed to do in War of the Spark. Just get on board. Make sure you are ahead, that you can pressure your opponent's planeswalkers. Don't play planeswalkers unless they're busted or you have great ways to protect them. That format just i made so much sense to me. Did you see on Twitter
1: that I tried to draft 8-cat deck again? I saw you made it to five, right? Yeah, I got I got five to Charm Strays and two of Johnny's Pride Mates. I went six three, didn't get the maximum wins, but it was really fun. Like I got a Charm Stray late in pack one, and then I went back to look at the 17 Lands draft log and I was like, if I'm gonna get the two that wheel, they have to be literally the second to last and the last pick of the pack. And that's what happened. I was that's like the happiest I've been in many weeks. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So uh, War of the Spark very, very fun. Excited to have that around for another week. But we're not doing that today. We're talking still time because this format is it's it's fleeting, Ben. I, I got like a, a box of Strixhaven swag. Um, we we got teased our, our preview cards that we're going to get to reveal in a, in a few weeks, which I'm very excited about. But that just feels so crazy to me. It's really
0: weird. time has been a roller coaster for me. I have struggled, I think, largely because I've been playing in best of one in like the diamond level for the vast majority of the format which is not necessarily the most healthy way to play Magic. No, not at all. But it is, I think, an interesting format in that the metagame has shifted It feels like every single week, and you have to be constantly adapting to what's going on in Best of One, at least. And, you know, I've made it to Mythic twice in Call Time now, and I feel interested in the format, despite losing a lot and despite there being challenges. And I feel like I'm constantly learning, but yet somehow at the same time, it still feels so narrow and so homogenous. And I can't quite reconcile those two things in my head.
1: Yeah, I... I get all of that. I think this speaks to me specifically as a format because of the the multicolor nonsense being so viable so often. And that's something that I like to do a lot. And I think whatever your opinion of the format is, as a content creator, it has been a real joy because there seems to be no end of stuff to discuss week after week.
0: Yes, I wish we had had this for four months instead of Zendikar Rising.
1: I agree with that. So yeah, this is, is actually going to be our last episode before we do our 50 takes episode to round out the format next week. And I'm Excited to do a little what's the play. We haven't done this in a while, so we're going to dive into some in game situations, some keeper moles, some tough spots in game, and talk through them. So, if you've never uh rode along for this style of episode, it's kind of tough to follow along, you know, orally, if, if you will, uh, orally, a U R A L L Y. Um, but we will have a companion piece where you download the podcast, a, a Google Doc full of all the links so you can follow along, play along before we discuss what we're going to do in those situations and see how your decisions match up with ours but before we get into any and all of that a few housekeeping things first things first is the patreon page patreon.com slash lords of limited is where you can go to give back to the show if you so choose i mean i just mentioned strixhaven is coming out in just a few weeks and we always say that at the start of a format you want to be in the lords of limited discord which is everyone gets access to that if they give back to the show via the patreon page you get access to the lords of limited discord 24 7 tech support for limited and That's where Format is broken open, wide open in the first week. So Strixhaven is going to be awesome, and we're going to dive into that in the Discord, and you're going to really get to uh, benefit from that support of that community. It's really, really awesome. And each and every week, we want to welcome our new patrons to the fold. This week, we're welcoming Arlo, Nathan, Gabriel, RJ, Christopher, Harvey, John, Joe, and Mark. Thank you, thank you, thank you. We really appreciate your support.
0: Yeah, cannot say thank you enough. And also in part due to Patreon, we released our first monthly bonus episode. That's right. Featuring Death Seat last week. So if you enjoyed that, there's more of that to come. Once a month, we'll be releasing an extra episode of Lords Limited thanks to a stretch goal that we unlocked through the Patreon. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Podcast is now also brought to you in part by Channel Fireball, ChannelFireball.com. Best place to go for anything and everything you need magic-related. It's a lot going on at CFB these days, but the biggest thing that I unfortunately had to miss out on due to the Color Guard invitation I was
1: hosting yesterday was the Time Spiral Remastered pre-release party. Yeah, it was super sweet. So, you know, they did a call time discord pre-release party that you and I were a part of. You know, we hung out in the discord, helped people with their sealed pools, etc. It was really fun. People playing sealed over spell table. And it was just like a really chill, relaxed environment. I thought it was super uh, well run. The Time Spiral Remastered discord party was like on steroids they had <laughs> so many different events they had cool like little achievements like we used to do that you could unlock so you could either queue against someone just normally 1v1 and sealed or you could queue against them in the challenge 1v1 sealed where you had like different things to unlock like have seven cards in your graveyard or have three creature tokens or whatever so that was cool they had these three different teams jaya safi and Venser. so you you know when you signed up you chose one of those teams everything you did in the discord throughout the weekend answering trivia questions getting pack one pick ones correct all of that like contributed towards your own personal points which then contributed to your team's points there were like these world boss things which were these arch enemy style battles there was just like a ton of cool stuff it seemed to me to have been seamlessly run I really enjoyed participating in the, the time that I was there on Saturday and of course I am happy to report that team Vencer won
0: boom I saw that you tweeted that when you were done with your shift that you were- were slightly in the lead i was rooting for you
1: yeah yeah very very slightly i don't think i contributed very much personally <laughs> paper, paper <laughs> magic is i don't know it's it's slow like i, I was only able to do four matches in my four hour shift dang yeah that's like what three whole drafts on arena <laughs> yeah right exactly if if you're if you're taking your time that is yeah so it, it was super fun kudos to cfp for running that event and I, they partnered with wizards for that one so really like hats off to them it was awesome and i'm very much looking forward to the next one of those Yeah, hopefully there'll be one for Strixhaven that I can hop on board for. So lots of sweet
0: stuff like that going on over at Channel Fireball. And as a reminder, if you do anything over there, whether it's signing up for CFB Pro or purchasing singles, purchasing draft stock for a draft with your friends, you know, once you get all vaccinated,
1: make sure you use code LOL when you head on over there to check out so that they know that we sent you over there. All right, Ben. So before we dive into our in-game specific situations, I did want to do a few like general heuristic reminders, touch on some stuff that we've certainly discussed in episodes past, but just a a reminder reminder about the things that we're thinking about when we're thinking about keeper moles or you know when to deploy a card draw spell or especially in this format tap land sequencing I think comes up a lot Um, so I just wanted to touch on a few of those points before we got into our specifics yeah absolutely so the first one i have here under mulligans is and i think this is a really important thing to try and instill in your head you want to look for reasons to keep your hands not reasons to mulligan so rather than like oh i'm missing my second black source for my feed the serpent that feels awkward like look at oh but i can cast the rest of the stuff in my hand so that's a reason to keep that hand yeah i would say with a
0: caveat in best of one That you need to, I think, just be operating under the assumption that your opponent is going to curve out. I think that is an important baseline. And I think Mulligan decisions are slightly different from best of one to best of three for that reason.
1: I agree. I am much more inclined to Mulligan hands in best of one, especially when I'm missing a color. Like there are lots of times in best of three where I'm like, ah, things will work out. But I feel like I'm going to be under the pressure in best of one that I'm just like, well, I'm essentially lighting two of these cards on fire in my hand like 50 percent of the time. And do I really want to do that?
0: Right. And I think it will work out in best of one, too you're just going to be under more pressure more often while you're trying to get it worked out, I think is the difference. Agreed. Another thing to think about is if you had to send one card back from your opening hand, would it be an above average hand for the deck? So if you're thinking, you know, like, because when you're mulling, you're going down to six cards, right? So if, if your seven card hand that you're thinking about keeping or mulling is, you know, six great cards and one card that's kind of awkward, it's still okay to keep, you know, if that six card hand that you have minus the one card that's a little awkward you know, you can sort of mentally shortcut it that way,
1: right? Just like, well, I'm gonna mulligan anyway, would I be happy with this hand if I mulliganed? Yes, well, then I should keep it as a seven because then you're just still up a card. Does your hand need both lands and spells to function? This is I think the easiest answer for if the answer is yes, then you want to mulligan. That's the biggest thing that I think about when I'm gonna mulligan. If my hand needs both of those things, if I need both. Two different things to draw, like like. Well, I need to draw a two drop because this hand is slow. But then I also need to draw lands four, five, and six to cast my six drop. That's a little awkward.
0: Well, and I think another thing is if you need lands of a certain color, yes. that also starts to border into mulligan territory for me. Certainly in best of one, I think. So if whatever your two drop and your three drop are green, and you've got triple mountain in your hand, and I think that's a pretty classic arena hand smoother opener. I think you ought to, (laughs) it is, I swear to you, I am a shuffler truther on Arena.
1: I've lost Ben to the shuffler truthers. (laughs) I have been on this
0: from the (laughs) get-go with the Arena Best of One Hand Smoother. It's out to get you.
1: Oh my God.
0: Yeah, pro content here on Lords of (laughs) (laughs) Olympus. But seriously, I think if you need, you know, whatever, if you have eight green sources and you need to draw one of those eight green sources, you're really not that likely to do it in the first, you know, three turns of the game or whatever.
1: Right. And so not only are you not likely to do that, then by the time you draw that green source, then your guardian glade walker is irrelevant, right? You don't need a two mana two two at that point.
0: And I think the other thing that happens in that scenario is you maybe you draw your one green source but you have like three or four green cards in your hand and you never get to the point where you can double spell because you need your second green source to double spell. That's also some tension that can result from those types of hands.
1: Exactly. I'm going to jump ahead here in the show notes because I think it's important to talk about here. Just just know your percentages in, in this case. So Ben's talking about this idea of, well, I have three mountains and then some green cards. Well, what are the chances that I'm going to draw a forest of my whatever? Even if you have eight, nine or ten green sources in your deck, are you going to draw those in the first two turns? I think you're like sub 50% to do that. And so my general feelings about percentages like that is if I'm in the 65-ish percent range to do something then i feel like that's in the keepable sense i so was like oh i like if i can chalk this up to at 30% of the time maybe i'm going to auto lose but 70% of the time i'm going to get there and that's good then i i, I keep those um, but when you're in that like you know 45 to 55% range that feels dangerous to me so just know your percents of like how likely are you to draw a land in the first two draws or a specific color in two or three draws and then also you want to count you know when you're doing that in this in this three mountain situation you not only want to count the forests as outs, but also what are your red two and three drops that you can draw that then can be plays for you with the three mountains that you have. Those can count towards that uh, calculus as well. Right. And to know those
0: percentages, if you haven't done this before, you need to use a hypergeometric calculator. So there's one built into Twitch with the MTG bot. Uh, If you're somebody that watches Twitch, you can in any magic streamers chat that has MTG bot, you can type exclamation point odds. And then you can use that as a hypergeometric calculator, like saying, you know, you're looking at your opening hands, so you have 33 cards left in your deck, maybe you have nine forests, and you have two draw steps to find one of them. So you type exclamation point odds, 33, 9, 2, 1, and it boom, spits out the answer. And then you just start to commit those percentages to memory.
1: Yeah, exactly. Back to the questions about keeping or mulliganing. I think it's important to ask yourself, and I think again, especially in best of one, does your hand enact your deck's game plan? If you're an aggro deck, does your hand curve out on the play? And if yes, then you're definitely going to want to keep that. And if not, like, let's say it's still functional, but maybe you are you only have one creature and it's not till turn three and you're on the draw. You know, th- these are all things that you want to think about. There are factors that are going to play into whether or not you keep or mull.
0: Right. And I think that question is more true for aggro decks than it is for mid-range or controlling decks, right? Mm-hmm. I think of the spectrum of types of decks, you're more going to more aggressively mulligan for better opening hands with an aggressive deck, right?
1: Well there's there's also as a as some as a dirtle player, I will say that when you're playing those like multicolor piles, you have the same questions as well, but it's the reverse. It's like, do I just auto-die to curve out with this hand? And so you know, something like having a spirit of the Alderguard as potentially your first play. Like that's unkeepable on the draw. That's more keepable on the play for sure.
0: Right. Yes. Yeah. And I think that's something we don't really have here is whether you're on the play or on the draw, right? That's huge when you're making your
1: mulligan decisions. Oh, please, Ben. It's right here. How- oh, it is. I can't read. Whew. Yikes. <laughs> um, so those are like all of the questions I think you and I are asking ourselves when we're thinking about keeping or mulliganing. But I, I'm, I we're definitely in the camp. And I think everybody out there, you can just I think it's probably a good move to just say i mulligan too much and try and keep more hands than you do currently yes i think that's probably true just a couple in-game things to talk about that come up a lot on stream for me as, as questions i answer or in coaching sessions um there's a lot of card draw in the format you know behold the multiverse one of the best cards i think <laughs> seen a lot of seize the spoils being cast this week um if anyone saw my appearance in top five plays my opponent went dual strike dual strike seize the spoils to draw six which was insane wow yeah uh so the default with anything like that should be that you want to affect the board first with all the cards in your hand before playing a draw spell you know if you can do something to affect the board for four mana instead of casting behold the multiverse you should default to affecting the board first i agree i think exceptions
0: to that would be if you need to hit land drops to accomplish bigger and better things later down the road.
1: Yeah, I think exceptions include that they include if you're digging for a specific thing, like if you know if you're in the mid to late game and you need to find an answer and you've got three creatures in your hand, but none of them actually, you know, change what's going on in the board, then sure, dig for that removal spell dig for that impactful creature. I'm not saying that you should always do that. But I think, you know, don't be like, all right, three man, I'm going to cast seize the spoils on three. It's like, no, no, please play your tuscary firewalker first.
0: So the last thing we've got here is tap lands and mana sequencing. This got me pretty good in the format and has gotten me a couple times since then. But when we were doing our team draft versus uh, team resources, there was a time against Marshall in a tight game that I needed to win that I played Packmate, mate and I played my third land drop before casting my foretold Packmate, mate. And then I hit a tap land. So there's a lot of things that incidentally draw you cards or behold the multiverse. So making sure if you've got tap lands in your deck that you always draw before playing your land for the turn, like my default is just to auto vomit my land out. So if I'm going to miss a sequencing thing with tap lands, it's definitely going to be when there's card draw involved like that.
1: The other thing I think you want to think about with cards like Glittering Frost or Replicating Ring, these mana producers that can produce mana, the turn that you play them, I probably lean into this too much. I'm always trying to like eke out that maximum mana usage. So I'm trying to, okay, I want to play Glittering Frost on turn four on an untapped land so that then I can cast my two drop off of it. Or same thing with, I want to play Replicating Ring on turn four so that I can use it and a land to cast a two drop or foretell something. I'm very conscious of not like lighting that one mana on fire if i can obviously there are times where you just want to run out the frost of the ring on three and that's totally fine but but all that stuff plus the tap lands there's a lot of mana sequencing things that you want to basically map out multiple turns ahead to think about maximum mana usage and all that absolutely all right let's dive in here let's uh let's do a few keeper moles and then we'll get into our what's the plays all right yeah i've got the first one
0: up here so our deck is a fairly standard blue red giants deck um, twos are not super gianty. We've got some Axe Guard Cavalry, Spurious Liberator, Immerstrom Raider, but generally normal curve, couple run amux, an Agar, triple Mistwalker, double Craven Hulk, removal. We've got a battle on Frost and Fire. That's the rare Saga and a squash and then 16 lands in the mana base, even split eight mountains, eight islands. Okay. So you look at your first opening hand here. This is Arena Best of One and you are on the play and your hand is Island, 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 run ashore, run amok, Tuskary Firewalker, Craven Hulk, Keeper mull.
1: This is an easy mulligan. And not because you need both lands and spells. You only need lands, but you need mountains. And you only need a mountain before turn three, right? You're on the play and Tuscari Firewalker is your first play. Like if, if you replaced an island with a mountain here, you could keep it. So you have two draws to hit a mountain before it becomes a problem. But you're just so unlikely to do that. I don't know what two... Draws for one of eight is, but it's something in the like 40% range. Yeah, it's sub 50% for sure. Yeah. So does this
0: change for you? in best of three at all that's why i wanted to include this because i think you can think about keeping this hand a little more reasonably in a game of best of three
1: i still wouldn't personally just because of what i said before like if i'm in that 50 percent or below range i'm not keeping those sorts of like you're just auto losing 50 percent of the time basically aren't you so one of the things we talked about
0: was other draws that you could hit besides the mountains right so just to be super clear for the deck there's a glimpse the cosmos that you could hit to dig for your mountain triple mist walker and Bloodline Pretender that would also be reasonable draws. So that adds five reasonable draws to your eight red sources. So it puts you up in the 13 hit range.
1: Yeah, that's fair. That That is more appealing for sure. It just still feels a little dangerous to me.
0: Right. It feels very dangerous to me in best of one. I think in best of three, I'm leaning towards keeping that hand though.
1: Yeah, I hadn't considered the th- three Mistwalkers, Glimpse, and Bloodline Pretender as potential outs as well. Yeah, so I think, you know, and it, it's important to
0: be thinking about that sort of stuff, but I think, you know, it even changes for me. That's, I think this one's super interesting, especially because, and I think it is a pretty clear mulligan in best of one, because you have to assume your opponent's curving out, but in best of three, I think it gets a little closer. All right, so I did mulligan that hand, and here's your second hand. Um, so this is now, you see seven, and you get a keep six. Your hand is... Island Island Giant's Amulet Mistwalker Battle of Frost and Fire Fearless Liberator and Tuskyre Firewalker. So you've got three red cards, you know, your your Firewalker and your Liberator as two drop and three drop, and then you've also got a Mistwalker that you can cast on 3 with any land.
1: So I guess the first question is is this a keep for 6 or are we going to go down to 5? Right. I, I'm it's it's dangerous, but I think the Mistwalker in hand and the fact that you only need to draw Any land to be able to cast that period, I think that leads this to be a keep for me.
0: And so just out of curiosity, if this were your opening seven, would you be keeping this as your opening seven? Yeah. Yeah, I think so too.
1: Right. So then it becomes process of elimination of what is the card we're going to bottom. So we're not bottoming a land, so the two islands are being kept. We're not bottoming Mistwalker because that's a play. I think similarly we're not bottoming Amulet, even though it's in my mind a five drop. Um, It's a kind of card that can stabilize you or catch you up. And I sort of imagine already, oh, this hand is I might be behind with this hand if I'm going to stumble. Similarly, I think Battle of Frost and Fire is not a bottom in my mind, because it's that same kind of card that can catch you up from being behind. So that leads me to Fearless Liberator versus Firewalker as like, the two other uncastables in the hand because we don't have red yet. And this feels maybe counterintuitive. I think I would bottom the Fearless Liberator here. I would
0: also because I think it's going to be the least impactful card. And if you cast it on turn four or something, if you brick on a mountain for a while, it's just going to be so irrelevant at that point in the game. So you basically have one turn to draw a mountain for Fearless Liberator to be a good card.
1: Right, because any other time, if you draw a mountain, you're going to play Firewalker before it anyway, because Firewalker is going to dig you towards more lands. Yeah, I think that's not intuitive. I think a lot of people would be like, all right, I'm going to bottom one of these two five drops, quote unquote, if we think about Amulet as a five drop. Yep, I like it. Nice. All right, I've got one for you here. This is a best of three draft. We've got a little Death Sea inspired double gold vein pick. Red and white rune, red white aggro deck. Um, you know, double battlefield raptor, triple dwarven reinforcements, doomscar titan at the top of the curve, kind of like a standard ish red white deck. I don't think there are any rares in the deck here, just a, just a pile of commons and uncommons. And then here is the situation you're in game two on the draw, and your hand is the following mountain, mountain, gold vein pick, rune of speed, breakneck berserker squash and doomscar titan yeah
0: so looking at that opening hand what what did we see from our opponent in game one what's their deck like
1: uh they're like a abzan snowish pile green black snow with draugr necromancer we saw eyesight troll packmate lindworm grizzled Outrider, that sort of stuff and so it sounds like we really want to get underneath them yeah yeah for sure so i think knowing what
0: i know about our deck and our opponent's deck i mean this is theoretically a functional hand. I mean, you can play gold vein pick on turn two the following turn. You can put rune of speed on it, but this is one of those hands. I think, you know, if you're an aggressive deck, you really want your deck to curve out and get underneath the opponents and put pressure on them. And this hand just feels like it doesn't put any pressure on the opponent at all to me. And so I think then you're just in danger of getting outclassed by your opponent's better late game. So I think I would mulligan this hand.
1: Yeah, I misspoke. We're on the play here. Does that change your feelings at all? It doesn't really to me. I think I'm mulling this on the play or on the draw. Yeah, that makes sense. I think I probably should have done that. I was just thinking that, like, I had the rune pick life going on. I had something I could foretell. But I think you're right about this is the kind of matchup where if we get to the late game or if I stumble, I basically just lose. And so I think I should be shipping this to try and find, you know, a, a Raptor into pick style hand.
0: Well, right. And you're the aggressive deck, right? And so to me, this is where, you know, this this is the aggro equivalent of, you know, you flipped that question, you know, when you're the control deck, are you just going to die if your first play is on turn four? When you're the aggro deck, are you just going to lose if you don't put pressure on your opponent in the first three turns of the game? And I think if your plan is pick into casting rune on pick, like you're just not pressuring your opponent at all in any reasonable sort of
1: fashion. Yeah, even that like hasty plus two plus one for one mana isn't really making up for not affecting the board on two. That's what I think. Yeah, I agree. All right, next
0: one here. We are in another best of one draft. We've got a sweet green black elves deck. Super good curve featuring a Sika's Chariot as a rare double pack mate. And we've got a bunch of good elves. We've got a Herald. We've got some equipment. We've got a runed crown with green rune, black rune, ravenous lindworm at the top of the curve. And then 16 lands in the deck, nine green sources, eight forests, a Elder Hall, and seven black sources because we are skewed a little heavier green than black. All right, so your opening hand is Swamp Swamp, two black sources and no green source, a Death Nail Berserker, which you can play on two, Herald, King of Skemfar, the green, black, gold, uncommon, a Seeker's Chariot, Bomb Rare, but unfortunately no forest for it, Raven's Wings, two mana equip artifact, and a struggle for Skemfar that you could foretell.
1: Yeah, as I was saying before we recorded, like you could tell me that you had. Seven green sources in the deck, and I would still keep this because of a number of things. So, right, you have three things you can do with the two swamps you have. You have Deathknell Berserker, Raven Wings, and Foretelling Struggle for Skemfar. So you're not that like all of those are affecting the board or whatever, but you are going to be able to use your mana in the first few turns, even if you stumble on that green source. And this is a pretty good hand if you do draw a green source on time, right? We've talked about before that like foretelling struggle on two and then death knell berserker fight on three is a pretty good play pattern because that not only removes a thing, but then gets your death knell berserker in that three power range to die into a two two. You've got the best card in your deck in your hand with Asikas Chariot. And whenever that happens, like I'm very inclined to keep the hand because Chariot's a kind of card that can make up for you stumbling on land Hands or colors so I, I would definitely keep this hand
0: i kept the hand as well and i we are on the play if i didn't mention that and you know we did do the thing where we played death knell berserker put raven's wings on it tried to do that defensively and just never got there on a green source and i think it's easy to take away from that after losing and bricking on your green source. Well, I should have mulliganed that hand or whatever, you know, because it just feels terrible, right? You had your bomb rare, but then you just didn't get to do anything and you lost. But I think it's correct to keep this hand 10 out of 10 times. Like you just have to keep doing that and putting yourself in good spots. And if you don't get there on the lands, you just have to keep making the same good decisions.
1: I agree completely. All right. Last keeper mull here. I want to take a look at. Um, We've got a wild you know, sort of week one of the format style deck here. Tons of snowlands. I think something in the like nine or ten range. Uh, Blood on the snow, double Narfi Betrayer King, uh, triple squash. We've got the um, Yorn God of Winter or Cauldring Rhyme Staff on the flip side with one Priest of the Haunted Edge to combo with that. Just like a wild grixis Snow pile here. So the Keeper Mulligan situation is you're on the play, your opening hand is Island, Island, Rhymewood Falls. That's the green blue snow land. So those are your three lands. And then your spells are Avalanche Collar, Priest of the Haunted Edge, Cardor's Vicious Return, the Red Black Saga, and Blood on the Snow. LSV sample hand right here. It is, baby.
0: So first thing I want to know is what are our sources specifically? How many black sources do we have? How many red sources do we have?
1: So uh, we've got 10 black sources, and this is including triple shimmer drift veil. And red sources are Highland Forest, Snow Mountain, sulphurous Mire, and Triple veil, so that's six red sources. Three, three of those are overlapping, right, with black and red with the veil. And what about other green or blue plays that are early? No, no green plays, right? I guess Yorn, God of Winter, we could play, but we're hoping to not. Other blue cards, double strategic planning in the deck, which might seem like a yikes, but is a pretty good combo with uh, Rhyme Staff and Double Narfi, and that's about it in terms of you know. If we draw another land, then we have out to play uh, two Frost Yetis, I suppose. And we're on the play on the draw on the play and 18 lands total. It's tough. I mean, I think this does
0: enough that I'm willing to see where this hand develops. Mostly, mostly because, you know, it sounds like we have a bit of a stew going and stews generally need all of their cards to function. Like you get really punished once you start Having to put a card away because you can't just put away a land that doesn't matter because all of your lands matter. And when you're playing a control deck or a deck that wants to go to the late game, hitting your land drops is one of the best things that you can do. Mm-hmm. So then all of a sudden you're pitching spells, but you need your spells to win the game. So I think the fact that we have Avalanche Caller plus the Snowland to play defense in case of emergency that we're really bricking hard. I think Avalanche Caller does a good enough job of holding the fort down that I want to keep this and see where it develops.
1: Yeah, there's two, I think, interesting factors about this hand. One is Avalanche Caller. Like, that's largely why you're able to keep. You're able to keep this hand because of Snowland Avalanche Caller. Like, if that's just any other random two drop, this is probably a, an easy mulligan, right? I think so, yeah. And the other factor, I think, is Blood on the Snow. And we keep talking about, or I, I think I keep mentioning these... these cards that if I feel like I'm going to stumble, these kinds of cards that can catch me up and blood on the snow. And I know we we are two black sources away from it. But like I said, black is our main color. We have 10 black sources in the deck. Blood on the snow is the kind of card that can catch you up if you do stumble. Yeah, I, I,
0: I agree. All of that leads me to want to keep
1: Nice. All right. That's going to lead us into our what's the play scenario. So like I said, you can follow along at home, uh, certainly with those keeper moles and and all of these what's the plays we'll have in a a doc where you can uh, check them out when you download the show. So first up here is another spicy Ethan style green based pile. Featuring my my favorite Wombo combo in the format, which is Burning Rune Demon, Finding, Cardor's Vicious Return, and Master Scald. Lots of snow stuff here. Double Glittering Frost, double Jaspara Sentinel, double Spirit of the Aldergar, double Horizon Seeker. Our our mana is very, very good and and a lot of power in the deck. The situation you find yourself in here is one of those land sequencing situations. So it's turn number three for you. You're on the draw. Uh, Life totals are both 20. The board is Volatile Fjord and Forest for you with a Foretold Packmate. Your opponent has tapped out their three lands to cast Mistwalker last turn. You've drawn for the turn. Your hand is as follows. Two forests, Shimmer Drift vale and Sulphurous Mire, so four lands, Blizzard Brawl, the Green Snow Fight Spell, Glittering Frost, and Svella. You have a lot of options this turn, Ben. Yes. We don't have that many options, right? Well, I'll, I'll talk you through what I see, and then you can tell me if if you think some of those are like you just write them off. So you can play Packmate and a tap land. You can play Packmate and Brawl to kill Mistwalker because we don't need three snow sources to do that. We can just play Svella or we can just play Glittering Frost, which I guess is probably that's probably the easiest one to write off of those four choices.
0: Right. So to me, you know, the Packmate Blizzard Brawl line is not something that immediately jumped out at me, mostly because I'm just not looking to use blizzard brawl this early in the game i guess so blizzard brawl is a bit of an awkward card but once you have three snow sources it's premium premium removal right yeah absolutely and so i think we're not in imminent danger of dying this mist to this mistwalker that card doesn't really become a huge threat until later in the game now like turn nine mistwalkers liable to be a huge problem and maybe then we'll snap off the blizzard brawl on it but generally opponents can't afford to devote mana to pumping it in the first whatever seven turns of the game or something
1: yeah i think that's a a totally good point to bring up
0: so to me i think what i'm most interested in is trying to i think get a tap land down this turn to make our future turns like to make sure that we have untapped land drops so i'm inclined to pack mate play a tap land see what we draw and then next turn i think that sets you up to be able to either Glittering Frost plus play a two drop or Glittering Frost plus Blizzard Brawl if you so choose, or also sets you up to get Svella down on the battlefield to start making Manaliths.
1: Yeah, I think I like that play if there's anything other than Mistwalker on the board for our opponent. The, the reason that I elected to, and I went with the Svella play this turn, and let me let me know if I can sell you on it here. I played Svella this turn because if, pac doesn't really do anything on this board now, right? It like stops their Mistwalker from attacking, but that's not really a problem as you said, right? Or in the early game, it's only dealing you one damage likely because your opponent's developing their board. And it's just going to be left on blocks now that we've played pac So pac essentially is just a cantrip that, you know, is gaining us one life per turn. So I elected to play Spella with the plans of making a Manalith next turn with it and then playing Pacmate. Um, just to try and like accelerate my mana a lot get use out of Svela, and get to the eight mana for the Svela activation as, as quickly as possible
0: oh yeah I like that play a lot I missed that this was a volatile fjord and that we could play Svela this turn wow he didn't even listen to me when I said here are your options and listen. unbelievable yeah I was trying to parse the board state with these teeny tiny cards on 17 lands sorry my as bad I, as I tell my twitch chat get your head in the game Ben I will all I'll, right. I'll be better. <laughs> yeah, but I think that's the best line. I agree that that's the best line because it's the most mana efficient line, right? And neither Svella nor Packmate changes what's happening. So yeah, I like getting Svella down and starting to tick up mana lists. And then you're guaranteeing yourself using all of your mana the following turn. Yeah. All right, I've got another one here for you. So this is a pretty nutso deck. This is a black-white deck um, that has triple Furia and Kaya the Inexorable. This is the only time I've drafted black-white in the format, and this deck is ridiculous yeah uh, it's got a shepherd of the cosmos at the top of the curve, some best gear shieldmates, a clarion spirit i mean it's everything you would want in a black white deck double feed the serpent so we have the nuts and our opponent is on a red white deck so here's what's going on in the game it's my turn three the opponent was on the play and so they curved out on us a little bit life totals were at 18 they're at 20 their turn two they played axe guard cavalry and their turn three they played a doom scar oracle so, they've got two creatures on the battlefield. They've got an Axe Guard Cavalry and a Doomscar Oracle. We have currently no creatures on the battlefield because on our turn two, we elected to foretell a Vengeful Reaper. So, we hit our land drop for the turn. We've got a Vengeful Reaper in uh, a foretell land in the exile zone. And our hand is the following We've got Swamp, Island, Kaya the Inexorable, Code Spell Cleric, Elder Fang Disciple. And Starnheim Courser, and so we've got three lands on the battlefield, two in hand. So we're guaranteed to hit Kaya on time. I think that's important to note. And we're trying to figure out what we want to do this turn. Options would include: and you could play Starnheim Courser. I don't love that. You could play Elder Fang Disciple and Code Spell Cleric. Again, don't love that. Um, I think the intention was if we foretold Vengeful Reaper that we're planning to Vengeful Reaper plus Code Spell Cleric this turn. But I think there's an interesting decision about where you put the counter from the Code Spell Cleric. So I'm going to toss it over to you. What do you think?
1: Well, there's a lot going on here. And I think looking at the deck list, which is what something I didn't do before looking at this, what's the play also informs what's happening. I mean, Kaya in hand already informs it in terms of like when you have a deck as powerful as this black-white deck that Ben has, when you have a card as powerful as Kaya in your hand that you can cast, and when your opponent is the aggro player, right? As, as they are there on the play, they've curved out on you a little bit. Ax guard Cavalry specifically, I think, is dangerous because anything in the future has haste, right? You sort of are playing a turn behind a little bit with that card in play. All of that adds up to pump the brakes, be in, don't die mode. You know, when we talked about some heuristic shortcuts <clears throat> a few months ago, we talked about what's the like most aggressive thing you can do, what's the most defensive thing you can do, and what's the most mana efficient thing you can do. And I think when you've got a powerful deck like this and a card like Kaya in your hand, you're in, what's the most defensive thing you can do? I think that's the mode you should be in. Yes, agree 100%. And so I think what that is, is let's get the most power and toughness on the board and let's get some stuff that prevents, you know, what's the worst thing that can happen? Hasty Craven Hulk next turn comes to mind, you know, when I see that Axe Guard Cavalry looming. So I like playing Vengeful Reaper and then Code Spell Cleric. And I think interestingly, because the Reaper has Death Touch and you're not going to attack with it, I think based on the things we just discussed, then you put the counter on Cleric itself rather than on the Reaper. Because I think a lot of people would go like, well, I got my hasty Reaper, let's do it. Reaper into play, Cleric, counter on the Reaper, attack you for three. But that's just a setting yourself up to be way far behind the following turn. Whereas if you put the counter on the Cleric itself, now it's a 2-2 and it can trade with the two creatures your opponent has on board, the Oracle and the Cavalry. And that's pretty big game.
0: Well, and I think there's also a temptation to, this is what I was talking through when I was playing, I think there's also a temptation to, if you play the Vengeful Reaper and you put the Code Spell Cleric on Vengeful Reaper, yeah. you have a 3-4 Flying Death Touch that blanks both of their creatures, right? And mm-hmm. theoretically, that's a great way to play defense. You know, you have a card that blanks both of your opponent's attacks. But the reason I don't like doing that is that you open yourself up to bound and gold or demon bold just being absolutely absurd cards for your opponent right that's how you lose this game is if you play vengeful reaper you put the cleric counter on the reaper and then your opponent has removal for the reaper all of a sudden they're attacking you for five and you're behind and your code spell cleric is doing nothing or chumping and so When you're in this spot where you've got a great card like Kai, you're just thinking, like, how do I lose this game? And I think losing the game is going for too much there and putting the counter on the cleric. Whereas if you put the counter on your code spell cleric, you have blocks and maybe you trade, you know, maybe you put cleric on the Doomscore Oracle and you put the Reaper on the cavalry. But there's no way you're getting savagely owned by a removal spell. And I think that's the reason to put the counter on
1: the code spell cleric. Yeah. I think that's that all makes total sense to me. There's a lot of options here with these just these few little intricate things like cleric has a lot to do in this situation. All right. So next up for me, we're back to that super sexy Grixis snow deck with the double Narfi, the blood on the snow, the cauldron Rhyme staff, triple squash, all that good stuff. The situation is, you know, people just in, in developing stages of the game, both players at 20. It's our turn three. Um, Our opponent has just played Mirror Lake Mountain and foretold something. So, you know, not really anything going on there. It's more about what we're doing here. So so we played a tap land for the turn. Our hand is as follows. Binding the Old Gods, Poison the Cup, Squash, Frostbite, and Feed the Serpent. You go ahead and cast Strategic Planning on turn three, right? So we've played a tap land, used our other two lands to cast Strategic Planning. Strategic Planning doesn't reveal very much that's good here. Three lands. So Snow Mountain... Island, and Immersturm, Cairn. So uh, tapped Spellland, and then Snow Mountain and Island. And I want to know, Ben, which of those do you take and why? And I I should tell you as well that one of these Shimmer Drift Veils that's in play is on green, so you can, you have the mana for binding the old gods. Okay, so
0: I'm just going to kind of talk through my thoughts here. We've got our three tap lands. We're just trying to set up for future turns. Our hand is literally all removal, and our opponent is currently doing stone nothing so with a black source and a green source already we know we can cast binding if we need it a second black if we chose the immerstrom skull cairn would give us access to feed the serpent guaranteed and poison the cup guaranteed we don't really need that if we need to kill something we can foretell poison the cup so the best thing that we can do right now is draw more cards and hit land drops or find a threat. So the thing I want to do is since we have no fourth land drop in hand, I want to guarantee that we can cast binding of the old gods next turn. If our opponent plays a creature, because then that's going to let us get a land and continue to hit land drops, which I think is pretty much the only thing that we care about. Or the other line that's open to you then is if the opponent doesn't play a creature on turn three, you still play that untapped land, the untapped Island And then you can foretell poison the cup and have poison the cup at instant speed to then nab whatever creature they play on turn four. I just think it gives you the most optionality down the road to try to hit land drops and or find threats, which are both things that you need to do.
1: Yeah, I I agree. I think the the greedy play here is to grab the Skull Cairn, but we're just so far from not only is that a tap land for next turn that prevents us from playing the spells that you mentioned, but also we're so far away from wanting to crack that anyway that it doesn't feel that uh, impactful. And then just a very, very small thing here. I think it's, you know, it's, Tempting to grab the snow land because, you know, we've got priest of the haunted edge in the deck or whatever. But actually binning the snow land, I think is pretty good here, given that we have I keep mentioning that we have the cauldron rhyme staff, the thing that returns snow permanence. So getting a snow land in our graveyard actually has benefits here. Oh, sweet. Yeah,
0: very cool. All right, got the next one here for you. This is one of mine. We have a, a green-white base deck here with some rune crown spice going on. So we've got a rune
1: crown with a green rune, a red rune. I gotta ask, Ben. Oh, yeah? There's a lot of rune crown life going on with these. What's the plays for you? Have you come around to this card? I have come around to Runed crown.
0: I think it is more of a package for me. Than a game plan, but I think Rune Crown plus, and I'm not going deep with the off color runes, but I think in the Naya colors, which I find myself ending up in frequently now that I've sort of established that as where I want to be for the format, I think Rune Crown plus any of the the Naya runes is just good.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think everyone knew that the white rune off the bat was good, but the green and the red one adding power and haste or trample is really big. Yes,
0: I agree. So Rune crowning here, we've got double Maya. Uh, we've got a Doomscar, Double Master Scald to rebuy a Fall of the Imposter, Ravenous Lindworm. This deck is just basically green white. You got dudes, you got equipment, you got removal, nothing fancy. So here's what's going on in the game state. Life totals the opponent's at 24. We are at 19. Um, here's your opponent's board. They have five lands out, all of which are tapped. They have three forests, a Sulphurous Mire tapped, and a Skemfar Elder Hall tapped. They also had a treasure token that they burned, so they just played Ravenous Lindworm, big bad boy in the format. So Ravenous Lindworm just hit the battlefield. They also have a Horizon Seeker and a Priest of the Haunted Edge wearing gold Vein Pick that cut in some chip damage on us early in the game. Wow, that's embarrassing. <laughs> it is embarrassing. <laughs> Here's what's going on on our side of the battlefield. We have an Elven Bow that made the Elf token, and so that's wearing it. It's got a. So we've got a two three reach in play wearing the Elven Bow. And we had played Fall of the Imposter, which is ticking up, so it's our turn. We're just about to hit our fifth land drop, and we put our Fall of the Imposter counters, both of them, on our little elf warrior. So we've got a 4-5 elf warrior token with reach, and our hand is following cards. We've got Rune of Might, so green rune. We've got Runed Crown in hand with the red rune to go find. We've got a Master Scald that's going to, if we get a creature in the graveyard, which we currently don't have, be able to rebuy Fall of the Imposter. We've got a Mountain and a Plains, so land drops are secure for the next couple turns. And we've got a Divine Gambit in hand as a removal spell, potentially. So there's a lot going on with this hand. So we're going to hit our fifth land drop, and you've got several different options going on here. So I'm going to throw it over to you and just kind of get your thoughts. I think the main one that stands out to me is... Do we divine gambit this turn or not? So because Fall of the imposter is also going to go off next turn to be able to deal with Lindworm,
1: Right. Yeah. So I think your life total is healthy enough that you don't need to gambit. So the, the options that I see are play rune crown and then equip it. And you can go find the red rune, which obviously gets you a card. But you can also just pull the rune of might out of your hand, which will make rune crown be plus two, plus two, which is kind of relevant slash not relevant because... So in that sense, crown is now plus two, plus two. You put that on your elf. That uses your five mana for the turn. Now your elf is a six, seven, which in theory holds off the Lindworm, except your opponent has gold vein pick, right? So there's no way that you hold off the Lindworm totally this turn. So I think if we're playing the crown, I like finding the red rune out of your library instead. And then you threaten to say like, all right, look, I'll trade with your Lindworm or you move the pick and then I take seven. And then next turn, your follow the imposter takes care of the lindworm. I, I think I like that better than Gambit here, just because your life total is healthy enough. Now, if you're at something like let's say that Lindworm connected once and you're at 12 or 13 or something, I like it a lot less because one removal spell really wrecks you a little bit, right? You know, they they kill your elf token and now they smash in with lindworm and horizon seeker. One of those things is gonna have a pick on it, and now you're taking 10 that's really, really dangerous. But I think I'm okay with weathering the storm of a removal spell for a turn, because I know that Fall of the Impostor is going to take care of Lindworm next turn with, with no mana investment. So here's
0: what I elected to do. Let me get your thoughts on this and, and why. So I think the rune crown line is an option. The opponent has Two cards in hand. Yeah. So I think this sort of boils down to a similar thing to the example with the code spell cleric in that our opponent's way ahead of us on board, right? And yet our hand, I think, is very powerful and is going to win a longer game. The opponent only has two cards in hand. Mm -hmm. So if we go for the runed crown line where you equip runed crown and intend to block lindworm let's say and then clean up something else with follow the imposter or whatever. Oh, you could also just take 7 from the lindworm. You just take 7. Then, I mean, yeah. Yeah, that's also an option as well. I think if your opponent has a removal spell, you're taking 10, mm-hmm. which is not a great spot to be in. I think that's a way that you accidentally can lose the game if you let your opponent leverage a removal spell. So, I I thought a safer line was divine gambiting now. And no matter what they put into play, even if it's some serious nonsense, you have follow the imposter to clean it up. And if they don't have anything to play, then you get to, you know, eat their horizon seeker. And I think you're just winning the game easily anyway. So I think that that was my logic for doing the divine gambit here.
1: I mean, I, I can't argue with that. It seems very very tempting to me. I think if you knew you could deploy Master Scald to get back fall next turn, I like it because it's like, well, I know what I'm doing next turn, and it's not divine gambit. But you don't have a creature in your bin to get back fall this turn, so I like that a little less. I mean, I think both. Plans are viable. I, like taking 10 is a lot. And I agree that that's accidentally losing the game sometimes. But you're still at nine, which is not bad. It's not bad. I agree. Yeah. And I think with with Divine Gambit,
0: too, you also get to deploy runed rune crown. You get to find the red rune, draw a card like it just develops your hand a lot more
1: yeah maybe yeah maybe i like play the crown find the rune see what's up like maybe if you draw a besker shield mate or something like would you rather just deploy that or you're still on the gambit plan
0: yeah i think if i drew a two drop i would rather play the two drop because then you're a lot safer against you know taking 10 from a removal spell or something so i think regardless of what you're doing you're playing rune crown first and play rune crown.
1: crown leave up meadow and plains so you have the option to play a white i guess no red two drop because spell is your red splash so, yeah,
0: I guess one drawback from the Divine Gambit line that I took is that if your opponent does have some other busted threat, they don't have to put it onto the battlefield into the fall of the imposter.
1: Sure, that's true.
0: Right. So like if they have another Lindworm,
1: they can just hold it until the fall fall goes off. But I think we're fine dealing with another Lindworm or something. That's good for you, I think, in the long run. Just then you get to use Divine Gambit as like whatever, murder, doomblade. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, I, re- I really like that. What's the play? When you put that in the show notes, I was like, ooh, I don't play with Divine Gambit that much. I've been I've been liking it a fair amount. Nice. All right. So next up here, we've got a black green deck that I uh, drafted in a coaching session earlier this week. Pretty spicy here. Uh, Blood on the snow. Not not many snowlands to speak of just three, actually. Um, but a lot of good black green stuff. Serulph, Realm Eater, triple Herald, King of Skemfar, triple draugr's Helm. Uh, some elves along the way, double Death Knell Berserker, double Elderfang Disciple. A um, little light in the removal department with just a struggle for Skemfar and Feed the Serpent, but I think a pretty good looking black green deck. The situation that we find ourselves in here is late in the game. Looks like it's our turn six. Life totals are the following opponents at 12, we're at 20. Um, they have stabilized from a, a sort of aggressive start with our, a Blood Sky Berserker from us. They went turn four, Spirit of the Elder Guard into turn five, Bergstrider to uh, keep one of our creatures tapped down. On our turn here, we haven't deployed our sixth land yet, but here's our board: a Blood Sky Berserker with two plus one plus one counters on it, two Elderfang Disciples, a Herald King of Skemfar, and a Drowger's Helm attached to a tapped zombie token, the the zombie token got tapped by the Bergstrider. Our hand is a sixth land that we haven't played yet, but can, a blood on the snow with no snow lands, and a herald king of Skemfar that our opponent knows about because we revealed it to the previous herald king of Skemfar. So there are basically two options, but one of those options has a lot of decisions built into them. One option is we can just play land number six and cast blood on the snow to clear the board, or we can move the Draugr's Helm to one of our creatures. And so the question is, if you do that, which is the creature you want to move the helm to? And then once you move the helm, what attacks do you have?
0: So true confessions, I was... Sitting here looking at this, and I was like, I don't know. I kind of just want to cast Herald King of Skimfar. <laughs> I was wondering why you didn't list that as an option, and then I correctly identified that we would have Legend ruled
1: ourselves. I mean, it's an impulse if you want to do that. <laughs> it does yeah. still look at the top five cards.
0: Yeah. Because uh, I was just thinking, so my logic was like, well, we seem to be putting pressure on here. You know, I'm just willing to chalk up Blood on the Snow as a dead card and keep putting the pressure on. But we can't put the pressure on more. So, yeah, if we're trying to decide where to move Helm and what we're going to attack with here. I mean, I think you're immediately ruling out Elderfang Disciples because they don't trade with either of our opponent's cards. So it's pretty much between Blood Sky Berserker and Harald, King of Skemfar, And I think it doesn't particularly matter to me too much i think i'm inclined to try to put it on herald to potentially leverage you know we want to get the herald off the battlefield um, i think so that we can play our other herald and then theoretically if we play our other herald we can hit more action to potentially double spell to make blood sky berserker a five five so i think i'd move helm to herald and attack here and try to force the block or force them to take five and i think either way we're pretty happy
1: yeah i want to ask you one question and i th- just because i think it's important to, to say why why isn't blood on the snow an option for you this turn
0: oh we're just super far ahead and we have no snow lands i mean blood on the snow is a f- essentially blank in my mind unless something goes horrifically wrong in this game but i mean yeah there's there's zero world where i'm considering blood on the snow as an option we have three cards in hand opponent has five cards in hand
1: Right. So it feels like they're turning the corner, right? They've stabilized slightly. The Strider was huge. They're up on cards. I think, you know, if if blood on the snow is getting cast, it's not for many more turns.
0: Right. And the other reason to not blood on the snow is that, you know, it's technically it's going to be suspicious, you know, if you're holding cards in hand, and not committing to the board, but driver's helm being equipped for. And with as much as your opponents on the back foot, you can kind of put your opponent like you know continuing to deploy their cards to be able to block your things that have menace, and then you know you can stack up your hand and potentially leverage blood on the snow later in the game if you need to if you get to that point.
1: Yeah. So here's what I think the play is, and it's not quite what, what I even did in the moment, or what 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 we did in the in the coaching session in the moment. So I think you move the helm to Blood Sky Berserker, which is what we did. So now you have two menacing threats, and especially with the backup herald in hand if you just attack with the menaced five five berserker and herald either outcome is okay right they double block and eat herald and then you just play another one next turn and you get him for five or they double block the berserker you get in for three and trade with one of their creatures and then i think if you move it to the berserker i think you attack with the two disciples as well which I didn't do in the moment. Because you're assuming you want to leverage blood on the snow. Right. So my feeling is let's just get in as much damage as we can right now. Like our opponent has stabilized on the board. So let's get in as much damage as we can before we're going to have to wrath.
0: I don't feel like we have to wrath. Well, not now. Yeah, but I don't even feel like so. I guess you're so. Yeah, I think that's a line I hadn't considered. So if you put if you put Helm on the blood sky Berserker and you smash all. Yeah then you're either your opponent's trading with Bloodsky Berserker or...
1: Right, every block is good. They double. They eat the two Disciples, we get in for eight. That's great, they go to four. They double block Berserker, they still take five and we kill a creature. They double block Herald, they eat Herald, but we get in for seven still. Like, all of those situations, I think, are good. Yeah, so after thinking about
0: it a little bit more, we just, listeners, you missed this, but I... <laughs> <laughs> went in the tank for like about a minute here. I'm sure Ethan edited it out of the podcast. I think that is a better line than what I took. So your line is I think the difference between what you and I are doing. And I think it's just important to to note this because yeah. I think thinking about how you think is one of the ways to get better. You know, we talked about that a little bit one other time, like the idea of metacognition. I think that's one of the best ways to teach. So what you're trying to do with your line is leverage blood on the snow. And the reason I I didn't really see that line is I, I when I I feel like we're far enough ahead that I just sort of chalked up blood on the snow to I am not worried about this card at all. And I think my line is generating the most individual value from each of our creatures. But you're, I think, willing to be a little more cavalier with our creatures on the battlefield, given that we have blood on the snow in hand.
1: Right. And I'm just like, you know, I, I'm so nervous about, you know, opponent going land, whatever, Lindworm, another Bergstrider that, you know, like we said, five lands in play, five cards in hand. I feel like the more turns progress, the creatures that we have in play are going to be irrelevant.
0: Yeah, except Draugr's Helm makes them relevant, right? So yeah. you can, I think, so so the difference is, I think with your line, you're going to be casting blood on the snow sooner than I am
1: Well, with my line. Or they're going to be dead, and both of those are fine outcomes for me, right? <laughs> sure. I think they are unlikely to be dead dead though i don't know i'm not convinced that's a really interesting spot yeah well maybe our listeners will have some uh some input as to what to do here yeah you want to send us home here with this last
0: one okay so we're back again with my sweet sweet naya deck here
1: with the rune
0: crown and then the green and red rune respectively so this game has been a slog we are now way deep in the game here we're on turn 11 it is our turn so we've got alone card in hand we've got a runed crown uh, life totals are opponent at 19 we are at six so we have stabilized but we have been on the back foot the whole game um, an opponent has their one card in the hand they've got six lands on the battlefield that are all tapped they've got a Maya Bredegard protector a soldier warrior token that has a gold vein pick on it and another warrior token so two Maya tokens one of them wearing a pick one of them not we have on our side of the battlefield. Seven untapped lands, a replicating ring on seven counters that will go off on our next turn, and an elven bow wearing a rune of might. So our hand, we've got the rune crown that can go get the red rune. Our battlefield is Master Scald
1: and svella ice shaper what do you think the play is so it's so funny like you put in our show notes like on the back foot what do you do and so i click on the thing and i'm looking at the board and i like you know life totals are are small in the 17 lands thing so obviously that has you know an impact here you being at six but just looking at this board i'm like this is great for you yes we're in a great spot you're in a great spot and and it's but like that that feeling of the game or the the progression of the game i don't have going into this right you have this feeling of oh man this was a slog i feel really on the back foot here and i look at this i'm like you're stable mabel you're you're great and you have eight mana for fella like what could be bad so my personal feeling with this and i i, I know this isn't what you ended up doing but i would just you know, you, the opponent has a 2-3, three, a 3-3, three, three, and a 2-2 two, two in play right now, and you have a 4-4 four, four, and a 2-4. So you're fine in terms of, like, on-board blocks. You, your 4-4 four, four outclasses all of their creatures, and your 2-4 can bounce off stuff or even eat a 2-2. Two, two. So you're not in danger of dying on the board. And I don't particularly think that, like, Runed Crown, or Bow does very much here. So I would just pass and spin this fellow Wheel if something weird happens.
0: Yeah, that is not what I ended up doing. Uh, I ended up playing, I was just thinking, like, great. I'm going to suit up my creatures. I'm going to make them awesome so that I have great blocks. I'm going to get a card deeper in my deck with a rune crown. And then next turn after the replicating ring goes off, I'll be able to spell out every turn and still have mana up to cast my plays like this is going to be awesome. So I played rune crown, got the red rune. Uh, we whiffed on what we hit off the red rune on our draw step. So I just ended up having the two gigantic creatures. And then I ended up losing to uh, my opponent having kaya's onslaught on their two two soldier because of maya so the plus one plus one from kaya's onslaught turned it into a three three actually they ended up stealing the game felt bad
1: yeah i mean we were just talking about this a little bit that uh you know that'll be edited out but like what are your outs here if you do because you're like oh, i'm just dead to that anyway and so you know this fellow wheel spin your your removal has actually been used up, so it's important to note. Like Iron Verdict and Divine Gambit are in the bin, and so you're only out really to the the events that happen. The Kaya's onslaught is Doomscar wrathing the board, which isn't great to be honest. I mean, it obviously stops you from dying, so that is good. But you know, that's effectively uh, what a, a I mean, a two for two, I guess. But you know. Clearing up your Svela and the Master Scald is not ideal, obviously. So it's sort of just an unfortunate run of events. But yeah, I like, you know, your creatures being super big versus big, I don't think particularly matters here.
0: Right. And it'd be better to have the one out than no outs. Right. And regardless, the thing we want to do more than make our creatures bigger is make our board wider to try to avoid some situation
1: like what happened. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, your opponent still probably goes for it, but I bet they're a lot more nervous about it into an eight mana spell activation.
0: Yes, absolutely. hundred percent. And maybe they
1: don't even go for it. Right, exactly. I mean, they, they probably have to like spell is going to snowball if they don't try and steal the game that turn. But yeah, maybe they just incorrectly assess that and pass and you win that way also. Yeah. All right. A lot of sweet. What's the plays there? Whew, yeah, I love doing these. They're, they're always tough to find, tough to articulate. Hopefully they were they were not too tough to follow along, but I do think it's important. You know, it's, it's hard to talk about more than just draft on a podcast, but I think it's important to do so.
0: Well, and I think one of the other cool things, this is the first time we've really had, we've stopped doing these sort of because we were playing on Arena and you don't have game replay on Arena, but now you do thanks to 17 lands, which is an awesome resource. So thank you, thank you, thank you, 17 lands. But you'll actually be able to, with the links, If you want, go back and replay these entire games from the
1: beginning. And, you know, see where you differed from our decisions and that sort of stuff. Yeah, you can see the full deck pick. You can see the draft, right? You can go through the draft for these decks. And then you can see not only the games we talk about, but any of the games with the deck. So that's all all, going to be super awesome as extracurricular resources for those interested in them. All right. Great place to wrap us up. Thank you, as always, to Salty Pretzels for our intro and outro music. Make sure you give it a listen. Thank you so much to ChannelFireball.com for sponsoring this podcast. If you're heading over to CFB for any and all purchases, uh, singles, boosters for whenever we're going to be able to draft with our friends again, or signing up for CFB Pro to read the content that me, you, and Alex are writing and other CFB Pros, uh, please use the code LOL when you check out to let them know we sent you there. Um, you can check us out streaming on Twitch and Twitter. Ben is going to be streaming up a storm during spring break. He's at twitch.tv slash Mr. Metronome. Mr. is spelled out. I'm at twitch.tv slash lord tupperware we're both under those same usernames on twitter and you can tweet at the podcast at lords of limited if
0: you've got any feedback about the show or any questions shoot us an email at lords of at gmail.com thank you so much
1: for listening and we will catch you next week for another episode of lords of limited thanks everybody see you later